0: Are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> Alright folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host Justin here with a quick word before we dive in. Now in this episode I chat with stage and screen actor Harry Groner about Broadway, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Theater Life, Dance, Musicals, The Mayor, and more. And also, there is a link in the description, wherever you're listening to this, to Harry's Theater Company. And if you're in the L.A. area, you can check out the theater and some of their live shows. Also, about a month or so ago, I told you guys that I fixed the audio issues that had been plaguing us. And, well, I did, unfortunately, when I was recording this episode. Long story short... I forgot to record on the third-party recorder that I have been using, and I'm not going to bore you with all the technical stuff, but if the audio is a bit off in some spots, that's why this is a one-time occurrence. Anyway, without further ado, here you go.
1: Greetings, citizens of Sunnydale, Mayor Wilkins here. Now, I know our great town is currently being ravaged by all sorts of monsters and madness and magic. With your vote, we can make Sunnydale great again. So take care, you crazy kids.
0: All right, Harry. Just to get started here, how about you take us back in time to when you were a youngster? Would you say you were a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above?
1: I was not a book reader. I am now. I'm. I'm. I'm a bookaholic. I gotta have a book. I even start to freak out when I'm getting near the end of one book and I don't have another one to go to. I start. To, <laughs> I start to freak out. I start to panic. <laughs> And this was not true when I was a kid. I did build forts. I think all kids build forts. I grew up in San Francisco, so we lived on a hill. So we built coasters, you know, uh, out of anything we could get to make a frame onto which we, on the axles, onto which we put skate wheels. And we would, you know, just go just, you know, pull the thing up the hill and then go back down the hill, pull the thing up the hill and go back down the hill. It was so (laughs) much fun. Our coasters were the best. And then my friend... Robert, who was in school with me, said, I got a coaster that my dad made, you want it? And I said, sure, what is it? So I went down to look at it. And what he and what his dad did was, he made this big old piece of plywood as the base on it, he put two axles that were, uh, it was a pipe, on the end of which he soldered ball bearings. And so uh, and on the front, of course, you can go like this, you can steer it. But it was right. the, 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 the axles were were pipes with ball bearings soldered to them. And so on our hill, what you could do is you could go down now you couldn't you couldn't make turns or anything with the skate wheels you could, but not with the ball bearings. But what you could do with the ball bearings was when you got enough speed and you shifted your weight, you can make yourself spin like this going down the hill, going down the sidewalk. And at certain kinds of weather, the metal on the concrete sparks would fly out so that was really pretty cool right it is it it was really cool and certainly for a kid of my age and we all had these coasters and we all just would you know like three or four of them we'd all just go up and down the hill with these posters or then we'd get big old cardboard boxes and make a wall and then ram through the cardboard boxes (laughs) and just go bam and just shadow the cardboard boxes so much fun so much fun (laughs)
0: <laughs> that definitely sounds like a wild time. I was looking into the background of your mother and father, and it just seems that you were born into the arts, and really there was nowhere else to go other than the arts for you.
1: You know, when I was very, very young, I wanted to be uh, a spy, <laughs> you know, a James Bond. I wanted to do that. My friend Chris and I, we had these fantasies about when we're growing up, we're going to have, we're going to get a great apartment and we're going to be spies and we're going to be playboys and we're going to be all this. This is when you're about by seven or eight or nine years old, you know, they were going to do that. And then yes, because my parents were in show business. That's right. When I saw, I think the first you know movie musical that I saw was South Pacific and I loved that. But then what really kicked it in for me was the movie of West side story. I said, I want to dance like that. I mean, I was always, I was in fact dancing around the living room. And I would dance for family parties and things like that. And it would all be improvisatory and I just on a record. And I would dance, but I wanted to dance like that. And so my mother found a class at the Conservatory of Ballet. And this was a jazz class taught by a man named Benny Reyes. And then while I was there taking that class, Miriam Lenova, who ran the company, the ballet, uh, in the Conservatory of Ballet, there was a ballet company called Ballet Celeste. And Miriam Lenova uh, ran it. She was the artistic director of that company. She was with the Ballet Russe and uh, she worked with the Ballet Russe in France. And she, at one point she came to me and she said, "Do you, are you interested at all? Do you want to play the prince in Nutcracker? Now, usually the prince has a lot of dancing to do. Well, I'm just starting out. I don't know from anything. I'm just starting out. So I can't dance. But I think what they did was they saw someone who could fit the costume and who could walk around and there was a big uh, Nutcracker costume. I could be in that. And then when you're transformed, you transformed into a prince. And I think they saw that I could be a prince. And all I really had to do at the very end, when we came to the land of the Sugar Plum Fairies or whatever the hell that that, that was, <laughs> I could tell the story of how Clara fought the Mouse King and saved. it was all done in pantomime. And then I had a few little, uh, you know, grand jetés around the stage. And then I said, and that's how I was transformed into a prince. And then I go sit up stage on the throne with Clara while everyone else dances. Right. And then you right. take a curtain call and go. So I said, sure. So I did that. And I really started to fall in love with ballet. And we also got to tour. And so you get onto, it's a bus and truck. So you get onto a bus and you go, we went all the way, you know, up in the West coast and we would drive for a very long time. And then st- early, early, early in the morning, then you'd stop at a national park where they would make you breakfast and you would get pancakes and eggs and sausages, and all kinds of the, the 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 some of the guys on the tour that were you know the stagehands and things would make the breakfast for us, and we were all chaperoned. We were young kids, of course, except for the adults who were playing the leads and dancing the leads. But we were all just kids. But we could tour up and down the West Coast, and eventually we went into Canada, into Vancouver and Victoria. And this was, I'm what now? I'm, I don't know, thirteen, maybe fourteen years old, and it was just the most spectacular thing in the world to do, to tour and to go to the, stay in these hotels and you're in these cities and you all could just walk around the city and go shopping and do whatever you want. But you, no one was there. Your parents were there <laughs> You know, it was on your own. But we had such a good time. And so I love those tours. And I did that for a number of years. I was with that company for a number of years and really, really loved it until I just sort of fell out of love with the ballet. And, and it was also that time where when I got into... I was in junior high school, also taking ballet and being with the ballet company. And then the last year of junior high school, the English drama and music department got together and did a musical version of James Thurber's The 13 Clocks. And I played a character called the Goliks. And that was the first time that I got to sing and dance and act in a show at the same time. So that was the very first. Musical, But that sort of kicked the theater part in for me. And so when I got to high school, I immediately joined the the theater department, the drama department, took acting classes. So the acting and the dance were happening simultaneously. And then I just sort of, the ballet, I just sort of fell out of love with ballet, but I love the musical theater and I love the theater itself. And so I just stayed with that. And so then I just did plays and things like that. And shortly after that, got into musicals and all that. Then I go back and forth between plays and musicals, plays and musicals. But that's all that started. But my dad, <laughs> yes, my dad, and both my mother and father were dancers. Actually, when I started taking jazz, they said to me, listen, if you really want to be good at this, you have to take ballet. Oh, that's what it was. You have to take ballet. And I said, I I, I really don't want to take ballet. I really don't, because I'm just going to be the only guy and all in the, like, I'm just this is going to be nerdy. And I'm, I don't want to, this is, if you want to be good, you have to take ballet. So I said, okay. So I started taking ballet classes. And that's when Miriam Lenova saw me when I was in the ballet classes. That's when she saw me. But yes, my mother was a wonderful opera singer. She would have had the war not interfered with their lives. And of course, the way it interfered with everybody's lives at right. that time. But with those, with my mother and my father, I think my mother would have been very, very successful in opera and she would have worked all the time. I don't know whether she would have been a star, but she really, she was a coloratura and she had a beautiful voice. We have recordings of it. She really did have a very, very good voice. My father was a concert pianist, but he was also, they were both, they both danced and they both could tap. But my dad also in Germany loved to work in the cabarets and so he had acts he had dancing acts and he had an, an act where he did you know an eccentric dancing and he was a rubber webbery guy he did magic stuff he did all all kinds of things but he had partners he sometimes it was a guy and sometimes it was a lady that was his partner for these particular gigs that he'd have around Germany before the war but yeah but he was a concert pianist and he actually had a a quick change act that was amazing What he did was there was a grand piano that come on stage that was already on stage. He would enter the stage, enter the, the, he'd go on stage in a very drab suit. He would sit down at the piano and begin to play this very elaborate, complicated piece. The lights would go out. And I don't know for how long they would be out. They couldn't be out forever. But the whole point was because when the lights came back up, he was in full tails and tucks. During the blackout, the piano kept playing. He kept playing the piano. But he had made a whole quick change and was in tails and tucks. And <laughs> so that was and they used to come to the theater with flashlights so that you see how my dad do it. And the flashlights were banned from the theater.
0: Did he ever reveal any of his secrets to you?
1: Well, he, I said, how'd you do it? And he said, well, you play and you go like this and you go like that. You, you play and you, you, you finally you get it with you know one hand while you're doing the other hand. I mean, he said he figured it out. No, he was a, a truly an amazing, amazing performer. I learned a lot from my folks. They gave really good notes when I was starting out. They gave notes to me that were practical and you could actually work on them. Like they would say, you're talking too fast. You're making too many faces. I can't understand you. You're not talking loud enough or you're talking too loud. All these things you could actually improve. You can actually do. They were very supportive, always very supportive. But they never went and said, oh, honey, it was wonderful, it was terrific, it was fabulous. <laughs> right, right. Doing this, you're doing that, you're doing that. So I said, okay, okay, great, thank you. <laughs>
0: So obviously, Harry, you just went through it. You did a shit ton of ballet before theater. Were there any lessons you took from your training in ballet that sort of helped that transition a bit easier for you?
1: Well, ballet, it, it, ballet, the theater too, but ballet is discipline. You, have a, you, you learn a discipline. Ballet dancers are incredibly disciplined. You have to be to get your body to build up to the point where you can do those ballets. They're very hard. They're very difficult. I eventually, once I finished doing the prints and I got a little older and a little better in the dance, I graduated to the chorus, (laughs) you know, (laughs) from a lead in the thing to the chorus. And I loved that because there was more dancing. You know, you got to right, play. and we did we did all kinds of ballets. We did uh, Swan Lake and Giselle Coppelia, a bunch of and they were all great, you know, folk dances and, you know, uh, the costumes were wonderful. But there was more dancing. So I love that. I just love that we could do all that. But you basically learn a discipline. And if you're working the correct way in the theater, the t- that's the other thing the theater gives you. It gives you a sense of discipline.
0: So your parents immigrated from Germany to the United States. Have you ever had a chance as a performer to return to Germany, maybe in the form of theater, or is that something you'd be interested in doing?
1: Oh, I'd, yeah, I'd love to go back there. I'd love to go to Germany and, and perform something in the theater. No, no, no. I, like, a few years ago, I got to do a, a, a film in Germany. I guess that's a kind of performer, but not really. I did Cure for Wellness over there. That was shot in, that was shot in Germany. And I said, I was in Berlin most of the time. And I saw, because I really want, I saw like 15 plays when I was there, because I can speak a little German. I just loved it. I loved going all over the place and seeing these plays. And I got the gist of what they were talking about. I didn't understand everything, but I got the gist of what they were talking about. I loved going to all these different kinds of theaters all over the place, from the broad sex farces to uh, companies that were like Steppenwolf. And it it was so exciting, really, really exciting. So, answer your question yes i'd love to go there and perform now i couldn't speak the language that i have to create a part <laughs> <right? For laughs> the someone, american <laughs> yeah, the, the american who speaks a little german <laughs> you know perfect
0: <laughs> yeah so now you're on stage how long does it take you to begin to realize that you could potentially pursue this as a career path
1: Oh, it, that i was very lucky that way because that was really from the very beginning once i decided it was going to be well, once i decided the stage was where i'm going to go whether it's in ballet or jazz or the theater once that decision was made it was it's always been there i haven't wavered at all so i was very lucky uh, i i never i always had an answer to that question what are you going to do when you grow up what do you want to be when you grow up? I always had, that. I seem to always have that answer other than being a spy, <laughs> right? Or, or something like that. Um, you had a plan I, I, B. I had, a, I, yeah, I, that was, that was, yeah, right, right. If I can't be a spy, my plan B is being an actor. Yeah, no, I always wanted, that's always, That's that was clear. And And I've been very lucky that way. I've only really only had a few jobs outside of the theater. Once when I was really young, still living at home and I was a dishwasher at this German deli that my mom and dad arranged for me. And then when I got when I was in uh, when I was in Seattle, the actor training program there for three years, I think in my second year I had it. I had to have a, a job and the only job that would fit into the schedule was a graveyard weekends of the graveyard shift, Friday and Saturday graveyard shift. So that weekend was those weekends were always very long. You know, you would have rehearsal of some kind. So you'd get up in the morning, you'd go to rehearsal, you'd be at rehearsal all day and then go to work at 11 o'clock at night. And then you're there at 11 o'clock all the way. And then you get up, you go home, you sleep for a couple of hours and go back and rehearse again. And then 11 o'clock at night, you go back to work. You know, so I did that for a while. And the first the, the first job there was being a dishwasher at a, uh, at a restaurant in, C- in Seattle called the 13 Coins. And that was what was great about that is that they also fed you at the end of your shift you got fed and so i got a meal out of that and then for some stupid reason i said no i don't want to do that anymore 11 i think i can i think i can pump gas i can do that so i got a job at a gas station again graveyard shift and i just really put gas in cars and clean some windows. And they taught me how to, you know, uh, do a, a lube job. to you can, you know, put a car up on the thing and do the lubes. They taught me how to do that. So I did that and clean the place. So I was able did I knew how to clean the place. But that was stupid because you're at, you're in a gas station. You got to feed yourself. You got to bring your own food and you're, it could be cold and you're stuck in a thing all night. And it was this dumb mistake, stupid mistake on my part.
0: So, Harry, I want to ask you about your Broadway debut. I mean, not only are you debuting in Oklahoma, which is crazy in itself, but how do you feel personally, having come so far, now you're on Broadway in Oklahoma? How does it feel when the curtain drops?
1: Oh, my God. It was, uh, well, you know, technically, that was really the second Broadway show, not the, the first oh. one that actually made it. The first Broadway show that I got, but it closed in Boston, was a, a, a musical mm-hmm. version of a playboy the western world and i played a a character called floyd beavis that's the american version of what would be an irish name in that play right it was a a a play that was put together was a musical uh, put together by the same people that did old calcutta that would be uh, margot sappington uh, jacques levy and Stanley Walden. They're the ones who put together Old Calcutta, which is a fascinating piece. And if you don't know it, Google it. It was uh, it, so ahead of its time because it was all about sex. The, and every scene And it was written by famous playwrights and, and the theme being sex, whatever the sex was. And the actors had to play all these different kinds of roles and all these things in addition to the nudity that was in the play. This is in the 60s, right? This was the nudity that was in the play. The whole opening number called The Robe, was you had all the actors standing there with white robes and then they did all this little little dance, little teasy kind of dance. At the end of which they dropped their robes and all the men and women stood there completely naked. And then they went on with the show, which was in some ways really, really beautiful. But anyway, it's those people that put that together, that put this together. And we did the best we could in Boston, but then at one point, the producer, Eugene Walsh, came to me and said, came to all of us and said uh, on stage, listen, guys, we're not going to make it. I, uh, uh, there's a newspaper strike in New York, but it, we're, we're just not going to make it. We didn't really. So we're going to close on the weekend. And so thank you very much. And goodbye. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> he was a great producer. He really was. He was a wonderful producer. But that was the first Broadway show. But Oklahoma, that was an incredible experience because, first of all, it was never meant to come into New York. It was always meant to be a tour. I did nine months on the road. And it wasn't until we got to Washington that the powers that be, that be Agnes DeMille and Bill Hammerstein, they all got together and they said, well, you know, this is really good. (laughs) We should we should bring this in. And then Agnes said, well, it's not going to go in unless you change the sets and costumes, because sets and costumes weren't really that great. And so we got new sets and costumes. But, you know, uh, uh, Agnes DeMille, who was a famous choreographer and she choreographed the original the original company of Oklahoma. Bill Hamstein, son of uh, Oscar, and when we got to New York in the pit, we had Jay Blackton, and Jay Blackton was the original conductor of the original company. And you're at, and you're at the Palace Theater. You're in the friggin' Palace Theater, that famous. You hear, you see, you read about it in theater books. You see it in in old films. You know, hey, God, we're gonna go to the Palace, right? Ground Zero, man. Yeah. So you're in there, and you're doing this incredible musical. We had a fabulous cast. Ran for another nine months and had a, a great 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 time and so it was an incredibly special experience for me i i i really lucked out i loved it i loved doing it
0: so up to that point do you feel that that was your most challenging role were there any nerves involved for you
1: i didn't feel it was that that challenging really will parker and oklahoma i mean they're the comic relief will parker and ada they are the comic relief so you got a lot of jokes you have some great songs and you, you sing the Kansas, you, you do the Kansas City number. That's pretty exhausting. But that's an interesting question up to that point. No, I don't think it was the most most challenging at that point. I don't think I really had anything that I considered to be. Oh, my God, this is really, really hard. Right. <laughs> you know, that's good. I just, that's good I just loved it. I just loved everything <laughs> that I was getting and, and doing. So uh, I don't know that I could answer that question.
0: You're always in costume on stage. But it just seems like, to me, that something like Cats, that it's much more extensive with makeup and whatnot, would just be more challenging from that aspect. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, well, that show was was challenging because it it was just all dance. And so you're just dancing all the time and you're dancing on a raked stage. You're dancing on a stage just like that, right? And many of the dancers did, in fact, hurt themselves on that raked stage. But again, that was, you know, it, and once you're in the makeup and costume and not changing anymore, you're, it, it, the, my makeup took a very long time. For some reason, John Napier, who designed the sets and the costumes and did the makeup, for some reason, got to me and made it really, really complicated so that it took over two hours to put on my makeup. And I, you know, he taught me, he showed me first how to do it, and then I, of course, had to do it myself. But it always took me two hours, so I can never leave the show in matinees. I always had to have food brought in. And I would be up in the dressing room and I'd eat with two other guys, my great, great friends, I loved that we were together, but they'd be able to go out. And so I would get up there, I'd eat my meal, and then I'd get out of the table and take a nap, like a little cat. <laughs> right. But because it was the kind of hit that it was, and everybody who got the gig knew that it was going to be the hit of the season, knew that it could run forever. And so we just felt wow. And it, and it, that was the kind of experience that it was. I mean, you never knew who was going to be in the audience on that given night. You, it could be and was Michael Jackson, you know, Diana Ross, Robert Redford, Gregory Peck, Ruth Gordon, Garson Kanan Dudley Moore. Presidents would come. Uh, President Carter Ross and Amy would come. Ray Bolger came to see the show. I mean, you didn't know who was. Uh, who was going to be there it was an uh, amazing experience that way and opening night they went friggin' crazy yelling and screaming and yelling and screaming oh my god it was so much fun it was so great and i did it for 14 months yeah so it was it was really cool i made really good friends when we we, when we were assigned our dressing room uh, It was way up at the top and it was a tiny room and there were three of us there was myself Terrence Mann and Hector Mercado.
0: Oh, man, I fucking love Terrence Mann. Sorry, Harry didn't mean to interrupt you, but man, I love Terrence Mann.
1: No, Terry's great. But Terry, Hector and I had a had a dressing room the size of oh, I can't do it. How do I do it? The size of this screen. It was <laughs> tiny. And we walked in there. And we went, what the hell is this? How we got? Well, it turned out to be the best, best, best dressing room in the world. We had a great, great, great time in that dressing room, and everybody wanted to be in that dressing room. All the the actors played the played the kittens. They would all come up, and they'd all hang around with us at the end of the show. But he would come up. and We'd have a we have a, a tape player up in the thing, and we boomed out mute Michael Jackson music, and we'd all just dance. We had a little tiny cooler that had beer in it for the end of the show. So you just pop a beer, and you and you because yeah, you really wanted something like that at the end of that show. And you had a beer, and you had that music, and you took off your makeup. Oh my God, it was great the show was a party certainly in that dressing room it was the size of this the screen no it was just it was really great it was really great we had a good time and they're still dear friends to this day terry man's a dear friend hector mccardo lives out here he's a dear friend but terry's working terry's getting gigs right and left oh he still is in the thick of it and he's and he's just aging really well i mean he looks fabulous doesn't he gray hair long gray hair oh my god he's cool he's a
0: cool man so, Harry, how did you get from the stage to the screen for the first time?
1: Well, you know, you come out here, work just work just sort of, we hadn't really planned it until about 1988. We hadn't really planned on coming out here, living out here. But work would sort of take us out here like once a year. Because my wife and I, Dawn and I, we lived in, in New York. And so we had a beautiful apartment in New York and we lived there. That was home days. And we were there for like ever and ever and ever. But then we're, you know, bring out theater work or bring us out here or something. And while you're here, uh, you may get a gig. I think the first gig I had was uh, a TV show called Remington Steel. I think that was the first gig I have. Actually, the very, I think, you know, one of the first gigs was uh, you're too young to remember unless, you know, you you unless you do know. But do you remember a show called Captain Kangaroo?
0: I'm aware of the show's existence. I've never watched it myself.
1: All right. All right. Now, here's the crazy thing. I think that's the first television game. When I was a really really young kid, I would watch Captain Kangaroo on television. I'd see uh, Bob Keeshan, he played Captain Kangaroo, and you'd see Bunny Rabbit and Mr. Green Jeans and you'd see Grandfather Clock and you just watched Captain Kangaroo. I get to New York and my agent says, "Do you want to do a uh, do you want to do a, uh, an episode of Captain Kangaroo?" I said, "What? He says, yeah, you want to do an episode of Captain Kangaroo? I said, absolutely, I want to do an episode of Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> so you go there, and there's Bob Keeshan. There's Captain Kangaroo. There's the, the guy doing Bunny Rabbit and doing the grandfather clock was this gentleman that I swear to God, he looked like he was he, he could have been in The Godfather, Italian, and he had a kind of voice like that, right? So it was great, but they were all still there. And I think one of my first gig, one of my first scenes, I had three scenes with him. I think I did it uh, more than more than once. I think maybe twice I came in or three times I came in. But one of my first scenes was I played an alien and I was in a silver things with a mustache and my little things like that sticking up. And I forget what the scene was. Another uh, uh, episode was I made, I was the curator of a numbers museum. All these numbers, one, two, three, four, five were on pedestals. And I made my entrance on a pogo stick. We did this, you know, uh, a scene about numbers and all that. And then I played a kid that had to get dressed. And so Bob Keishner and I did these bits about getting dressed. And, you know, you put on a coat and you put your, you put your, uh, he puts his arm in one side and I put my arm on the other side. And we realized with the snake we made and try to get out, you know, all those little bits <laughs> like that, with just trying to get dressed. But yeah, so Captain Kangaroo and I did, you know, three of those. So that's probably the first gig. but Remington Steel I did it and you just did your gig or whatever it was. And I, at the end of it, I go, I don't know if this is for me. I don't know that I like this because I'm a theater guy. Right. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm just learning about all that. And I go, I don't, I, you know, I don't know that I, I'm not sure that this is what I want to, you know, get into at all. And then you do another one, then you do another one, then you do another one. And very, very slowly. And now I love being in that television and film world because out here now. When you go on to different lots, when you go on to 20th Century or Warner Brothers or Universal, and you're working on those lots, you will inevitably now, because of all the other work that I've done in television and film, you will see people that you know, whether you're in costumes or whether on the set or whether it, you, you're all just, it'll be just like the theater, right? And in reality, television film film is, is just the theater in a different medium. The goal is the same. It's to mm. tell a good and interesting story. They're just the same whether it's television or film. And, and, and with television and film, you have the technical part of it. You have computers and now you can create these worlds and now you can do all this stuff, which is incredible and fantastic. The community... It's virtually exactly the same as it is in the theater, and so many of the people that you end up working with—not only the actors, but so many of the technical people that you work with, makeup people, and everything else—they've also, you know, gone off to work in various regional theaters or on Broadway or whatever it is. And so you have people in common, and so I just love it now. I love going on the <laughs> lots, and I love doing, uh, you know, episodic in television and and things or doing a film or something. I I really dig it, and I like the work in front of a camera. I really do. It's a, a whole different way of working, and and to figure out and to learn the technique is, I think, you know, really important. And so, uh, and I'm slowly learning. I'm slowly getting it. You work the same way now. You know, it it depends. So many of the roles in an episodic situation, the characters are really just a color, or they're uh, you're either red, you're blue, you're green. You you can't vary, right? You're just that, and you're on for such a short time, or you're just information, like if. The detectives in one of the in a CSI or in any of the law and orders or whatever it is, they come down to the, the street and they're talking to a guy who owns a store and they're saying, did you happen to see the guy? You know, and so you're giving information. Yeah, I kind of saw him and he had uh, red hair and uh, a kind of a beard and a black shirt. And that's all. That's your function. You have to give that information so you don't go crazy and try and develop a crazy kind of character. or anything like that. Don't do that. That's not what they hired you for. They hired you because of the way you look which mm-hmm. is fits their idea of that character and just give them that color or give them that piece of information and then go on to the next one. But then you get every once in a while, you get a role that is just, you know, filled with all kinds of neat stuff that they write in there. And then you can have a bit more fun. I love that. I love doing that. I really enjoy doing film. I don't you know, prefer it over, over television, you know, because you can, you know, many times you get the travel. For example, I get to go to Germany with doing right. a cure for wellness and, They flew me back and forth because of the role about five times, you know, so you got to spend a lot of time in Germany and I got to see a lot of Berlin and I got to do a lot of really, really cool stuff. And speaking a little bit of German that I do, some of the German that I knew when we first immigrated, because I didn't speak English when we first, when we go, I was one and a half, really speak English until I started going out into going to school and all that. And then I started to learn the language. So English is really a third language for me. It's uh, German and Russian were the first two languages not both of which i didn't speak very well but I you speak you know as a child but a lot of what i knew as a child was coming back to me while i was in germany so i could go to a restaurant and i can order in german or i could go and take a cab and i could talk to them in German. say i want to go here i want to go here i want to go here or well, my right. hotel is here and have little mini conversations you know that's interspersed with some american because they all speak english
0: that's the best and most natural way of learning a language is to go to the country and speak and interact with the people
1: that's right, and you know, but everybody in, 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 that I encountered in in Berlin, everybody speaks English, and sometimes you 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 ask in German, they answer you in English, and I say, but I'm trying to <laughs> <I'm> try <trying> to <laughs> learn my German again. She says, oh, okay, but everybody speaks English, so you have you know, no no issues, with getting around or finding what you have no issue, and so I just I just loved it. I really loved being in in Germany. Uh, my wife and I love to travel, and so I loved when we were in Italy, when we were in Greece, when we were. Those are vacations or in England. Oh, my God. And so we try, you know, you try to learn, say, at least please and thank you. At least, you know, thank you. At least say, learn that for my goodness sake.
0: Now, Harry, you were involved in a film I have not seen since I was a kid, but Patch Adams. What was your experience like on set with Robin Williams?
1: First time I worked with Robin, who was, I mean, he he was, he was truly an, an incredible performer, and incredible human being and all that. But the first time I worked with Robin, there's a theater here in California that's still uh, running. It's called the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts in Santa Maria, California, which is up north near San Luis Obispo. I went to that theater. That's where I got a lot of my really basic training before going to the University of Washington. That's where I I started there when I was 18 years old. I worked there for seven summers, I think, finished in, in, in 1970, I started there. 76 is when I finished and Robin was there one of the summers working as an actor. And he was young. He was in his thing and suspenders and stuff and his hair going all like that. And he could, you you know, whenever he's in a group of people, he would just, he would just go and just be funny and riff and do things. I mean, it really was incredible. And he was in, I think we did a Caucasian chalk circle, a wreck Caucasian chalk circle. There's a play called arsenic and Old lace where he played a dead body and I think he was in an, in another play. But, you know, just hanging around with him. It was hard to be on stage with him because he'll crack you up. And to give you an example of Robin Williams, right? You think of Robin Williams. Robin Williams in Arsene Canoles is playing a dead body. This is a story about two old ladies who... For, they, they 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 kill people, so their dead bodies all over. It's a comedy, right? And they kill people all over the place. He's playing one of the dead bodies in the curtain call. He gets a special. The audience he takes a call. They the audience goes nuts. Whatever he did as a dead body got special attention from the audience, and he got applause for it. He's a dead body, <laughs> <laughs> right? And he's he's brilliant. He's brilliant. But Patch Adams. The scene, I, I played a doctor, right, in a, in a, in a not a psychiatric hospital, but kind of like a psychiatric hospital. And he's a patient that I think, I don't know the story, don't know the story, but he admits himself so that he could also leave himself. But there's a scene where he comes into the office and basically says, I'm leaving because you're not helping me. And I'm playing the doctor that you can tell by his attitude why he's not been helped because he didn't he give a fuck, he didn't care, right? But the director said, all right, we're going to do a couple as written. So we can get that in the can. So you did the scene as it was scripted and he did everything as it was scripted, finishes, get ups and goes and leaves the room. Right. Do that a couple of times. He said, and the director said, okay, now we got that in the can. Now, Robin, you can go do whatever you want. (laughs) Right. So then Robin starts to do his thing and I got to be there and listen to that. Now I, I did not crack up. The crew at times cracked up. So we'd have to start again, but I did not crack up at the end of which Robin says, Jesus Christ, you're like a, you're like a, fucking rock. And I said, Robin, that's because I'm not looking at you. I'm not listening to the patient. I don't really care. I'm stirring the stuff in my coffee. I'm doing something. I'm not looking. If I looked at you while you're doing all this, it'd be all over, but I wasn't looking at you. And so I said, well, but we had a, we had a great time and he was so terrific to everybody. He was always prepared and disciplined and he he kept he he created a, a familial kind of atmosphere with all the actors and and it was he just made it a wonderful, wonderful working and safe environment. And and you can understand that when you see Robin not only perform, but you see him in interviews, you see him in, in his, you know, in his life, that he's a generous person, really, uh, uh, regardless of, you know, the demons. Obviously, he had demons. We all, all right. do. But I didn't see any of that. It was just Robin being brilliant, being funny, and taking care of everybody. For all you out there who love Robin. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. And it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a loss for all of us and for his family that he's not with us anymore. So I hope he's making making God laugh. I know he's making God laugh.
0: Thank you for sharing all that, Harry, and my first personal experience with your work was your role as Mayor Wilkins on Buffy. So going into the audition, you know, obviously you have minimal information on the character. What's your mindset? How are you approaching Mayor Wilkins in the audition? How did you land the role?
1: honestly, I don't really remember the audition. I just went into, (laughs) I don't really, I I just went into the audition the way you were. I was going into all the other auditions that I was going to. You just do the role as best you can. Um, I don't remember getting any notes from Joss. I just did the role as best I could thinking that this is, you know, where he needed to go. I didn't, I didn't play villain. I didn't, you know, do any of that stuff. I just played it straight and was ecstatic when I got the role, but that actually wasn't, the first role for Buffy that I auditioned for. If you remember, and I'm sure you do, a lot of the fans will remember, at at one point, I think it's where in season three it is, but it's it's finally the confrontation, the first time that Buffy and the mayor meet, and it's in in the cafeteria. If you look at that scene, the entrance, when I come down the hall and I walk into the cafeteria, in the hall behind me is a pedestal on which is a bust. That is principal, is it Flutie? that is that is one of the one of, i think it's principal flutie and i think armin then becomes armin shim then becomes armin. the comes the becomes the, uh, the uh the principal because flutie's no longer there but i think uh, for that role i auditioned for that role of that principal when the i guess when the principal was an actual character before he's no longer there and now he's a bust so if i'd gotten that role i'd still be in that scene
0: <laughs> <laughs> well because be I'm glad you didn't get buttons. the first one.
1: Yeah, I'm so happy the <laughs> first one. Yeah, no, I, I I I lucked out, and it was only supposed to be an eight-episode arc, but because of the fans, thank you very much, it got to be a, a number of other episodes, many more episodes, to the point where in the last season I had that wonderful scene with Faith that they that they put in, and that is because that scene is only there because of my wife, and let me explain. We were in New York, and we were coming back to Los Angeles. We were at breakfast at some uh, coffee shop, and Don says, "You know, this is the last season of Buffy." I said, "Yeah, I know." He says, "Why don't you call them up and see if they'll put you in the la- an episode of the last?" Season. I said, "They're not going to put me." Said, she she's literally said, "Don't be an asshole. Give them a call." Is what she said. So I said, oh, "All right." So I I called my agents right there. I called my agents, and said, "Okay, so it's the last season of Buffy. Do you think maybe?" If you said something, they might write me in a scene or something. She goes, "I don't know. Let's try." So they called and they wrote the scene because now I was there in California, and they wrote the scene. Had we not done that, thank you, my wife Dawn Didewick. If they had, if my wife hadn't said, "Don't be an asshole. Call them up." That scene wouldn't be there. Isn't that that's, something? That, that's that's right. That wouldn't be there. And Eliza, my God, she was just she was incredible to work with. She's a a, a, a wonderful actress, as you all know. She's a, a an incredible actress. We had so much fun. Working together in that in the, in the show, I just I just adored her. I just really adored her, and I love that relationship so much that father daughter relationship.
0: I love it. So obviously, Buffy is one of the most popular television shows of all time, and by season three, they were rolling. So now you're behind the scenes. In your opinion, if you could put your finger to something, what was the catalyst to that success?
1: My, my experience in that third season, I, I saw a cast that really, really uh, liked each other a lot. And Joss was, was really wonderful and wrote to everyone's strengths. But I saw that cat. They hung out together all the time. They were, you know, they were such good friends. And I think that translates to the, to the screen. But you also have Joss, who's writing shows that a young teenager could really relate to. And because they're talking about subjects using the metaphor of the vampire that is, and demons and all that, that they could really relate to. And so I, he taps into something and it's so well-written. And the comedy is actually really, ter- and he just creates these wonderful characters, the mayor being one. I mean, Joss really did, whenever I got, to, whenever during the, uh, uh, in those episodes that I did, if I ever got, if I ever started doing things that were too villainy, like you must pay the rent, you must pay the rent, he would just say, no, 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 just throw it away. Just throw it away. Just throw it away. Don't worry about it. When you're playing someone who has all that power, you don't really have to do anything. Everybody else, everybody else does something. You 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 know what your power is. You know what you can do. And you know what you can destroy. And everyone else knows that. And so they behave around you uh, the way they're supposed to behave because you're someone who has all this power. But you don't have to. You don't have to show people or tell people, "Look, I'm really really powerful. I'm the bad guy." The, <laughs> you don't have to do any of that stuff. Just just say the lines that Joss gives you and let it all work, and let the audience take from it what they will. I mean, one of the reasons that he's scary is that he doesn't have the horns and the scales and the teeth and the things. He doesn't have any of that stuff. He's just like your guy next door. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen uh, pictures of you know uh, serial killers who look innocent, and look, they're, they're all just nice guys, and they're all there, but they're killing hundreds, not hundreds, but they're killing all these people. <laughs> and, you know, he's got to be you know have certain values <laughs> <things like> this, <laughs> and have certain you know things about cleanliness and all that these are these are important things he has to have at the same time he's got to kill people so <laughs> and the fact it continues to excite new audiences mm-hmm. i mean when i go to some of the conventions and stuff the young people that come in and i go they weren't even born yeah when, when you know, But and 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 they're just discovering it and they're really digging it and they're really getting into it. And that's a testament to Joss and the cast and all the people that created it, that they've created something that sustains. And as you know, there are shows that don't. But with Buffy, it really does sustain. And that's because of the way the show is written, the way it's performed. And so God bless them.
0: So here's a little odd coincidence or synchronicity. A few weeks ago, I had a chance to chat with Raphael Sparge, whom you worked with on Once Upon a Time, and you played his father. What was your time like on Once Upon a Time and working with Raphael?
1: That was so much fun because we played, and and forgive me, I I forget the the actors who played my wife, who was wonderful in it. Names just go out of my head. I can't remember anymore. But we had a good time because we played, you know, sort of carny people that Mm -hmm. were you know, uh, taking advantage of everybody. They they were always looking to scheme and, you know, get money out of people and right. cheap people and all that kind of stuff. But they put me in a great costume and, you know, longer hair and a funny thing <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And so, and they and again, they wrote really well for the two of us. And both of us having the kind of theater background that we did, we knew exactly what they, or pretty much had an idea of what they were looking for in the scene. We knew how to make that, that comedy come across and it was just it was it was just so much fun to do and when we did some of those scenes where they are country scenes where you're outside and there are cabins and and little shacks and you know wagons and horses and all that outside some of those parts of those scenes were in fact shot outside but a, a lot of those scenes were shot in a sound stage where they had the shacks and things and all that under in front of a green screen and then when you look straight up in that soundstage, you look up and there are these geometric shaped pieces of pieces up there. And on them, they have all these geometric shapes to them, squares and triangles and squiggles and all that kind of stuff. And they're all over the place. And I asked, I asked uh, one of the camera and I said, what, what is all that? He goes, that's the camera itself, you know, will point up there and it can, it can tell it tells the camera where it is in relationship. And so on a computer, you can wow. sync everything up and you can sync it up so it all works when you're actually outside and when you're actually all there. It is a it's a directional thing for something. So it tells the camera or tells the person on the computer where the shot is. It, it, it was mind-boggling, <laughs> mind-boggling yeah. when I saw that. But you're but you're actually inside. You're actually inside a sound stage and you're doing that. And then a couple of little things you do actually outside. And of course shooting in Canada. And we had and I love going up to Vancouver. I love shooting it up there. So we had a good time.
0: So, Harry, if you could go back in time and have a second attempt at a role, maybe just to take a different approach for the hell of it, what would it be?
1: Oh, my God. Well, you know, there were so many. When people say, what do you have one role that you love so much? I don't. I have a bunch of roles that I loved so much. I really loved doing and uh, and I, I I certainly couldn't do it now. Going back in time would we'll literally have to be going back in time, depending <laughs> on how old I was when I actually did it, right? But I would love to go back and do Stephen Sondheim's uh, *Sunny in the Park* with George again, which is a wonderful musical about George Surat, uh, that Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters originated. Uh, I did that for four months on Broadway. I took over from Mandy playing George, and I would. I would love to do that again. I would love to do, and this I could still do. Actually, I loved. I got to play a few years back. I got to play King Lear, and I would like to do that again. And the good thing about that role is, the older you get, the better it is, as long as your mind's okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? As long as you can keep the lines on. I'd do Lear again. Lear would be fun to do. I mean, there's. I've I, I had such an incredible career. I think, and, I, and there's so many wonderful roles that I've been given that i really enjoy i like to do anything with my wife so any of the mm. roles that, that we were in any shows that we were in i'd be happy to do those again with her because she's a wonderful actress and so i would love to do that to do uh, to work with her anytime on stage
0: how many times have you guys worked together professionally
1: oh my gosh oh at least you know 10 to 15 times i think we've gotten a chance to work together I, Recently, I think the last thing we got to do together was a play at our theater company here in Los Angeles called the the Antias Theater Company. Here's a little plug. The Antias Theater Company. We're in Glendale now. We have a beautiful facility, two theaters. And uh, we did a play called Three Days in the Country that is a version. Turgenev is a Russian playwright. He wrote a play called A Month in the Country. And this is a play called Three Days in the Country. And that's the last time we got to work together. We had this beautiful scene together. But that was the last time, and that was a few, that was way before COVID and everything else. Now the company, as many theaters are, we're starting to get back mm-hmm. into it. Again. We have a production of Hamlet running right now, and then we're going to be, uh, Dawn and I are both going to be in the next production, which is, uh, and that'll start in, I think, mid-September and run to mid-October. It's a play called Everybody. It's based on a, an ancient play, actually, a very ancient play called Everyman, Brian Jacob Jenkins, I believe, is the playwright. We start rehearsals in August, and, and so we're going to be in that. But it's uh, going to be at the NTS Company. If you're in L.A., check it out. If, if you can do it, we're going to start. I mean, the company of, of Hamlet by now has had to cancel a performance because of COVID. I can't imagine that, that when we start that we're not going to be hit with something like that as well. So many companies around the country uh, have had to shut down. You know, Broadway shows have had to cancel because of COVID. And so uh, that's still running rampant in the country. And so we all must still be careful to protect our family and our friends and ourselves because it's not over and it's not going to be over. We're gonna to have to live, right? We're gonna to have to live with this. But at the moment, people are still getting sick. They're still going to the hospital and they're still dying. We have to be careful. Both Dawn and I got, got it. We were had a trip uh, to the East Coast. We went to Washington DC for a wedding and then we went to Virginia to visit her family for about a week and when we got back we tested ourselves and i was positive she was negative and then a week later she was positive so we both got covid now they were mild cases uh we weren't really really both of us weren't really really sick mainly really really tired right um and we got over it we had a cough but we got over it but it's still out there everybody mm. it's still there so be smart be careful and watch out for yourselves and your family and your friends take care of your community
0: well said so, Harry, what's the best acting advice that you've received throughout your career?
1: Be prepared, I guess. But by that, I mean, do the work. Learn your lines. Some actors don't. They say, well, I'm going to learn my lines as I go along. No, 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 no. I, my, I, learn, I learn my lines if I have time. And most of the time I do. I learn my lines before the first day of rehearsal. So I'm off book completely first day of rehearsal. So I'm not looking down at the script. I'm actually looking somebody's eyes and you begin the real work. But there's that. Show up on time. Be disciplined work, work hard, but, but enjoy yourself, you know, and be kind to your fellow actor. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-indulgent. This is not about you. It's about the play and (laughs) tell the best story that you can. It's collaborative art. It takes all the people, this is a one person show, but even that one person show has a stage manager, has lighting people, has all that. It's a collaborative art. And so you're working with all these people to make the story work. It's not about you. So be kind. To your fellow worker and this sort of applies to anybody's work not just acting right be not just acting it's everybody be kind to each other be patient and be understanding and and, and help out as much as you can And we'll all get along, I guess. I hope. I hope to. I hope so, Justin. I hope we. I hope we can get along eventually. (laughs) What fun! What fun!
0: Well, Harry, I guess just to cut you loose this evening, and so we have a ending point here. What's on the horizon for you? Is there anything in the pipeline you can tell us about?
1: No, no, no. Just the uh, show at the Antius Company. Bendell, California. If you want to learn if you want, I'm going to plug again. If you want to learn about the Anteus Company, go to Anteus a n t a e u s.org dot org, and you'll find all uh, about all the company, about everybody who's in the company, about shows that are happening, and about the play. Everybody that Dawn and I are going to be in uh, in September and October. So anyway, there you go, pal.
0: Awesome, Harry. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'll make sure to put a link in the description for all your theater needs
1: <laughs> i appreciate that thank you so so much that's really sweet of you thank you man all
2: right here you have a great evening i'm gonna cut you, you loose too.
1: what fun <laughs> it
2: was great justin all right bye-bye now. thanks my friend you take care welcome to the night you think you know night demon then the night demon heavy metal podcast is for you step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon All with in depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.